humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Hamid Darabi, Chief Technology Officer at QRI, and Yannick Agbar, Senior Partner at AWS, working with the Energy, Power, and Utilities Division. QRI is an AI solutions provider that helps companies automate complex workflows and illuminate opportunities from data. There are a lot of big words in there, so I want to break this down and walk through a use case here on how QRI and AWS are automating and facilitating the energy transition. So Hamid, Yannick, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and also make sure I got your names correct because I'm terrible with pronunciation. Uh, Yannick, let's have you go first and then Hamid. Oh, for sure. <clears throat> Hello, uh, my name is Yannick Agboy. I am a you know, senior partner solutions architect with AWS and you know, focus on the energy utilities and power segment. And I've been with AWS over three years now, and uh, my background is in petroleum engineering. So what I do is I work with partners such as QRI, you know, build you know innovative solutions targeting you know our oil and gas customers, ranging from you know AI, ML, IoT, robotics, um, data analytics, and so much more. And so I'm happy to be in this podcast and also to share what we have with you. Great. Thank you for the introduction. Now, Hamid, let's have you go and then also give an introduction to QRI. Um, okay. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Hamid Dorabi. I'm uh, the Chief Technology Officer at QRI. I've uh, been with the company for almost 10 years now. Uh, my background is in um, reservoir engineering, uh, software development, and machine learning. Uh, I've graduated from the University of Texas at Austin, Hook uh, Horns. Uh, with a PhD in petroleum engineering and have been involved in many machine learning projects in the past 20 years. I've also authored and co-authored more than uh, 30 technical papers, um, mostly about the use of machine learning and AI for, for solving different uh, energy problems. Uh, so about QRI, uh, the company was founded in 2007 and uh, built a reputation as uh, leaders in reservoir management. Uh, we have helped uh, many national companies and independents uh, enhancing production reserves and capital efficiency along the way. And um, today the company is really focused on uh, digital transformation and sustainability in, in oil and gas and in the bigger picture, the, the energy sector. Um, we are also energy competency partner of AWS, all of our machine learning solutions, which are part of our uh, Speedwise technology suite uh, are built on AWS. And we are grateful for the collaboration, which helped us to be more agile and 
and, and uh, innovate faster. Uh, so to, to give you a bit more color on what type of problems we address uh, on the digital transformation side, we solve many problems such as uh, optimum well placement, um, workover candidate selection, uh, artificial lift optimization, well spacing and frack design optimization, and so on. Uh, all these solutions are data-driven and AI-based and are superior to uh, traditional workflows because you can solve them orders of magnitude faster and also more accurately um, due to, the, of course, the, the nature of these data-driven workflows, but also uh, the power of the automation and, and, and cloud computing. So on, on the sustainability front, there are two specific projects uh, we've been working on recently, which I'm really excited about. Uh, one is related to uh, clean hydrogen production from fossil fuels uh, in collaboration with our partner, uh, Omnis Global Technologies. And, and as you know, I mean, there, there are many questions um, when we talk about net zero goals and the role of fossil fuels in the, in the future energy economy. But uh, our partner, Omnis, developed a, a game changer uh, technology that proves uh, both technically and economically that, that uh, fossil fuels can uh, actually become enablers for, for net zero by converting them efficiently to, to hydrogen. And where QI fits here is really optimizing this whole process using uh, machine learning and, and data-driven workflows. Uh, the other um, initiative that is equally exciting is about oil field uh, water management. Uh, we have built specific AI-driven solutions for subsurface water management in the past, but now we're expanding our solutions to cover uh, the entire cycle of, of water management in collaboration with our partner, uh, Infinity Water Solutions, uh, which is an um, Austin-based company uh, really reshaping how the uh, energy industry um, recycles water with, with green infrastructure and, and clean technology. Thank you for that introduction to QRI, Hamid. Uh, you did a much better job than I did. It is, it's kind of crazy to think about how you talk about data transfer digital transformation and data and machine learning and really just how much that can look at the entire gambit of what it means to optimize the oil field. I I really want to dig into these different case studies. I think we'll probably only have time for one. So I'd like to focus on, on that water side. You talked about subsurface and now going up above the surface. This is very interesting to me. Can you give us a little bit more detail? What exactly, I guess, let's frame this question. What is the problem with oil field water management? Kind of starting high level. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, let me walk you through some, some specific problems uh, during two operations that involve water. I mean, one is fracking, correct? And, and the other one is uh, water flood. And in both these examples, uh, you need to source the water for the operation. And that's your first problem. Uh, uh, for example, um, a significant portion of valves being fracked today use fresh water, uh, which is not a good recipe. I mean, you might need anything between 2 million to 60 million gallons of water for a typical frag well, depending on the formation uh, uh, that you're working with. And these are not really low numbers. Uh, the, the second problem is how to optimize the operation and maximize the energy return on investment. We're talking about um, improving capital efficiency, but also meeting uh, some specific um, ESG goals. Uh, if you're fracking, um, you want to maximize productivity of the valve by using the minimum amount of water, correct? And for water flood, you want to 
maximize oil recovery while minimizing both injected and, and produced water. And, and the third problem is dealing with the water that is produced with oil um, from, from, from the wells. Uh, on top of the cost issues, there are huge environmental issues related to this uh, you, because you cannot really just uh, dump the water that you produced from the field anywhere you want. Um, you probably heard about the uh, significant increase in, in, in earthquake rates, uh, crack, uh, reported in Texas over the past few years. And many scientists really believe that it is associated with old companies injecting that produced water underground. And, and if you look at the U.S. Uh, uh, as a whole, I mean, we're producing more than 25 million barrels of water on a daily basis, which is a huge number. And really to become sustainable, we have to recycle this water and reuse that in our operation instead of using uh, fresh water, for example. You said 25 million barrels of water a day. Correct. Yeah, that seems like like quite a bit. And I guess, do you, just out of curiosity, do you have a breakdown with that 25 million? Is that just the produced water or is that associated in part with these frack jobs? Uh, I mean, some of them are associated, of course, with with the frack job, because uh, once you uh, do the fracking, you're going to produce some of that water, correct? But that is really, I think, the, the production from oil field. Uh, uh, water and and if you look at it, I think most of this is coming from from Permian, which is like the the biggest play and have the biggest problem with the with the, with the water production. But uh, there are actually like data that are breaking down like uh, where the water is coming from, from which place, which formations. But uh, but yeah, these are like really huge numbers. I think I believe like last year, I don't have the latest number on kind of what was the number in two thousand twenty two, but. It was when I, when I checked, I think in the, like um, November, it was expected to be, uh, uh, tw- I think, like a north of like 20 billion uh, barrels on, on an annual basis, uh, which is which is crazy numbers. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, it's as you talk through this, this is from the the early stage going through sourcing the water for the frack job. And then now kind of skipping ahead to the production and what we do with this water, talking about 25 million barrels of water a day, it, it sounds a little, a little overwhelming to think through what we actually do with that. So let's, let's dig in a little bit deeper. What are some of those questions kind of from, from frack job onset, from drilling and completion through to how we actually manage this water. What are some of those questions when we're building out this water management model? Yeah. Uh, well, I think um, there, there are like different steps, correct, in, 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 the, in, in the process. I mean, uh, uh, to be honest, I mean, the, the process is not exactly the same for, for all the operators, uh, Although like they have like uh, similar challenges, correct? So I think the, the first part is like sourcing the water, correct? So uh, for example, if you're fracking, um, are you going to use kind of fresh water? Um, going to do the use kind of recycled water uh, for for operational decision making, correct? Let's say like you want to uh, daily optimize your water flood. 
uh, what, what do you do? I mean, some operators, uh, some operators use kind of like a, uh, spreadsheets and, and uh, some just do the optimization every six months using like traditional reservoir stimulation models and some even like don't do any optimization, right? And and then I think also it's just like uh, the handling and the treatment of, of the produced water. And again, some operators just like recycle their water uh, properly and then the, the others just like inject it underground. So I think when, when you look at this kind of problem, um, there is no really a standardized uh, kind of solution out there. Um, uh, again, these are kind of big questions to, to answer quite so. And each, on each one of these steps, there are like big decisions you need to you need to make. Yeah. Also, just to add to that, I you know in my previous, previous life, I used to be a fracking engineer. So <laughs> so I can relate to that. I think, um, I mean, sometimes you even have, you know, water leakages and spills, which, you know, we don't usually take into consideration. And, and that's a huge factor also. And from a, a, I mean, we're dealing with a highly complex reservoir systems, right? So sometimes some wells, you know, might be on the, you might underestimate or overestimate the amount of water you want to use. And so from a management perspective, that might actually be a huge challenge. I've, I've had that multiple times. So yeah, it is a huge problem. And, and we need, we don't have a fixed end-to-end solutions as of right now. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess a a question I was going to ask you, Yannick, on that, as when you were a frack engineer, did you ever think about the produced water or kind of anything after that frack job? Or did you just kind of move on to the next one? Well, ideally, we used to move on to the next one. But sometimes when we look back, right, we want to measure the productivity after the frack job, right? You know, did we actually improve? You no. Know? Sometimes we go back and then you know, try to work with operators to see how the job did and maybe we want to you know, change our you know, fracking fluid you want to use maybe a much more, is it a gel base or you want to go much more in a different the chemical compositions, right? So, yeah, sometimes we do tend to look at the amount of you know, flow back water and you know, being produced out of those wells. and But again, we don't have any you know, streamlined process to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it almost sounds like in kind of each step of the oil field, it's more or less a siloed siloed problem. For the frack job, you think about that. Sometimes maybe you look at the flowback water, but really you are answering the question of what is what is a way to optimize that frack to get a better frack job? It's not necessarily how do we reduce our water use or water consumption. It's just how do we get more oil? Which is, it can be the same question, but it maybe isn't. And then from there, it's it's okay. Now we're we're producing, and where does the water go from there? How do we best utilize it? So it's it's interesting there that there are these different silos, and I guess that's kind of the the point that you're making here is that it's not streamlined. It's not end-to-end solution it is every department does its own thing is that am i on the right track here is that is that what we're talking about yes no no you're, no, you're absolutely right Joe. And, and, and that's exactly correct and that's the reason we actually partnered with uh, infinity water solutions correct because uh on the on the subsurface side uh qri speedbus technology which is built on aws uh, provides these kind of ai driven solutions correct 
they can optimize your operation on a daily basis. Uh, either your goal is to maximize capital efficiency or meet your ESG goals during fracking or, or water flooding, crack. And then when the water reaches to the surface, you can use Infinity as a closed loop like recycler, meaning they can treat and reuse 100% of the water uh, that they gather from you, correct? I mean, they, they have a massive water sharing network in Delaware Basin, recycling more than 125,000 barrels uh, daily right now, and have uh, uh, about like 3 million ba- barrels capacity for staging the water that can be sourced to you on, on demand. And, and this entire water recycling process from the treatment to staging to sourcing is optimized, uh, leveraging uh, QIs, data-driven and machine learning-based uh, workflows. So, so in a summary, it's a, it's a practical, cost-efficient and environmentally uh, friendly solution to the huge problem we just discussed because there is not, I mean, these problems, I mean, there are solutions to these problems, I mean, exist today in the market, but as you said, they're kind of siloed. So, uh, so that's how like we found the opportunity to kind of like, um, join this partnership and, and uh, provide these uh, holistic uh, solution to, to, this, uh, to this specific problem. That is, it's exciting to hear and exciting to think about the opportunity to go kind of end-to-end holistic solution. Uh, I guess as a, so as a geologist, so I'm a geologist, I am familiar with the subsurface and with reservoir models and with building these models. And, And right here in front of me, I've got a gaming computer, which I bought specifically for running and developing models. I think you guys know where I'm going with this. When you sit there and you build a model and you let it go, sometimes it takes two minutes to run. Sometimes it takes two hours. There was one one fellow grad student when I was in grad school, which was admittedly a while ago, but they had a model that took three months to run. Uh, oftentimes, that model runtime ends up being an inhibitor. Yannick, to your point earlier, if we're talking about moving on to the next frack job or moving on to that next solution, we may not have time to sit there and wait for a model to tell us what the optimized value is. I guess in QRI's um, history going from 2007 to today, what... um, what was the process? I would assume that it doesn't take two months to run a model and optimizing this whole holistic solution has to be a part of the, the offering and the, the value add here. There's a long way to say, how does, how does QRI offer, offer solutions and, and solve these problems in a fast, valuable way? Uh, no, that, that, that's an excellent, uh, excellent point, Joe. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, like, let me just like, let's say like focus on specific kind of model, correct? Let's say we're going to build models for, uh, for subsurface for, for water flood optimization, where, um, there are so many parameters involved in that optimization, correct? So from, uh, the, the objective function is it really trying to, uh, increase oil production, reducing your OPEX, um, or minimizing your in- environmental footprint to meet your ESG goals. Then uh, there are different constraints, correct? So what type of uh, facility limits do you have? How much water um, you have available for injection? Are they uh, kind of specific limit for voidage replacement ratio due to specific reservoir management policies you're following? 
And again, uh, there are all these kind of like operational factors, correct? Right? Can you uh, open shutting valves? Uh, are you able uh, to uh, to shut down some of the producing valves because of the uh, excessive water production, etc.? So, uh, answer the these types of optimization. Even if you have that model, that let's you said like takes like let's say two hours or like five minutes. Uh, to do these types of optimization, uh, we need to run like thousands and, and thousands of models, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to run the model thousands of times to, to get to the, to the optimal answer. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, I mean, the, the traditional reservoir, if you look at the traditional reservoir models, um, specifically I'm talking about these finite difference reservoir simulator models, uh, they, they can be very slow and, 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 and challenging in this situation because, I mean, it takes sometimes six, to, six months to a year to build these models. Updating is challenging, correct? And even uh, once you have this model, as you said, uh, it's going to take time. So they might be appropriate for the design phase when you have plenty of time, but not really appropriate for, for decision-making when you want, you want to make decisions maybe on, on a daily or weekly basis, correct? So, so the technology we uh, we have here uh, specific for that problem I, I described is called Speedwise uh, Water Flood Management, uh, which is a cloud native technology hosted on AWS. It specifically addresses these challenges. Um, it's based on a proprietary uh, physics informed graph neural network that optimally blends physics and uh, data to. Um, uh, for, for fast and reliable subsurface modeling. modeling. Um, I don't want to go too deep here. I mean, if you're really interested to know more about the science behind the technology, recently Yannick and I did a webinar with, with Heart Energy, I believe it was last October, and we went over the theory and how the graph model is really built. But if you take my word for it, I mean, the graph reservoir models that we built is super fast and accurate. Uh, basically, you get a uh, super fast model with the same accuracy or even sometimes better accuracy uh, compared to traditional reservoir models. And uh, building the model only takes a few days. Uh, updating is just a few hours. And then running the model just takes seconds. And uh, we utilize AWS infrastructure and uh, the power of uh, cloud computing, really, to run the model several thousand times in just a uh, matter of a few minutes and, and come up with the, with, with the optimized scenario in that, in that situation. Yannick, did you have something to add? Yeah, <clears throat> I know Ahmed talked about, you know, running the, the model, actually bringing down to like minutes, right, from hours or weeks to minutes. And I mean, one of the things, um, again, that's a ben- one of the benefits of, of, of cloud, right, for, you know, if you talk about, you know, ML infrastructure. So um, AWS, um, you know, we have one of the highest performance, performance ML infrastructure, right? And just to, you know, just to add to what Ahmed said, for instance, we have the, kind of like the P3 instances that have been designed for training, right? The dedicated hardware for training those machine learning models. And I mean, based on numerous customers actually using that, we've seen that we have about 2.5, you know, 2.5 times increase in performance using those dedicated hardware that, you know, that has been provided by AWS. And so if you're, you know, running your solution on 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 that that helps boost up your your performance and we can also see that with the inference right because if you build your machine learning model well you want to be able to inference so you can actually predict right so again we have another specialized hardware um the inferential which you know boosts inference speed by up to 2.3 
if I'm not mistaken, times, right, than, than if you want to use a standard GPU instance or etc. So um, these are some of the benefits that, you know, you know customers and you know, partners like QRI leverage when they use the AWS infrastructure. And one other thing is scalability, right? You know, you know we, are, we are talking about, you know, the waterfall management, not just in North America, right? That's a global problem, right? You know, different countries. So how do you want to scale your solution? And the AWS platform helps you with that as well because we have a global footprint, right? We have regions all around the world. So if you have a customers maybe in the Middle East, you want to run your workloads, I mean, you don't want to host them in the US, right? For latency reasons, you might slow, you know, the inference might be slow. So you want to run that in a dedicated, you know, hardware closer to the end customers. And so with the AWS global footprint, that actually helps you. And again, I don't want to go too deep, right? But security is also really big concern, right? Because I mean, you don't want, you know, you don't want your data leaking out. We've seen so many cases where, you know, data you know, protect privacy and all that might be a problem, right? And we know dealing with oil and gas customers, they take data privacy very, really seriously, right? So within the AWS platform, we provide you tools, you know, for user access management, you know, data encryption. So we provide our you know, partners, those tools that they can use to build highly secure solutions. So when you take to a customer, they are absolutely 100% sure that this solution is well secured, right? Because, you know, they are using those tools that have been you know, they are compliant, you know, fulfilling all those different compliance requirements. So, yeah, so these are some of the benefits that uh, we've seen partners like QRI leverage, you know, just using the AWS cloud. There, there's a lot there that to, to talk through. And I don't even know if I've, I've got the right questions in mind to, to think through that. But some of the most interesting parts I heard there that I was unaware of is that there is, you, you said that there's specific hardware developed for training machine learning models. Yes, we do have, yes. Just not just training, but also training. And also there's a different dedicated hardware designed for, you know, inference. If you want to, when you train the model, how do you deploy that? Right. So yes. That's, that is fascinating to me. And then thinking through all of those other points that you made that, that sometimes as, as a geologist, my header's in the rocks. I'm not thinking about things like security or even like, okay, my model, if it has to go up to, so I'm in Dallas, if the nearest data center is in, is in Oklahoma city or comparing that to Seattle, that could have a difference in terms of carbon footprint, in terms of how fast it takes to run. And, and to Hamid's point, if we're running thousands of models to try and understand what is going on, even if that adds an extra 30 seconds or even, even an extra five seconds, an extra five seconds, if you're running thousands or tens of thousands of, of models, now we're talking about potentially hours or more added on to our work time. And ultimately that continues to add up going into all of the different fields. And as we're trying to solve these worldwide kind of energy problems, it's a fascinating to think about. So I'd like to ask if you could give me a little bit more of the history with QRI, kind of using QRI as an example of going from a traditional 
kind of service company offering your solutions to the oil and gas industry and then getting to AWS to kind of speed that up. What did that look like? And what kind of bottlenecks did you see that ultimately you were able to overcome with that transition? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, that, that, that's, that's an excellent question. Uh, uh, really, I think like um, even when we were kind of starting at this kind of like a, a advisory business model that we had in, in, the, in the beginning, uh, we were relying on our internal technologies, correct? But these technologies were not really customer facing. They were um, desktop based and it was more like really uh, programs that were written in mm-hmm. kind of like Python, MATLAB, all these kind of engineering type of uh, programs that we wrote. And uh, I mean, a few years ago, we uh, started to um, migrate our uh, code to, to to the cloud and start to uh, productizing some some of these technologies. And uh, we've partnered with AWS. I mean, there was a lot of different challenges, um, but I think um, AWS really have a really good uh, partner ecosystem that really helped us to to onboard. Uh, I mean, uh, personally, I mean, I didn't have any background on the on on the cloud uh, in the past, so. Uh, I learned a lot, but I mean, they have like different groups and uh, and um, and programs in place that uh, help partners like us, Craig, like like QRI, to get up 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 speed up to speed in, in the cloud. And and really, I think you um, there is not really that much rewriting the code. Really, is more like architect. I mean, coming up with the right architecture, which AWS can help you with. Uh, but then, you, as, as Yannick said, you get all these kind of benefits on the elasticity and, and scalability, correct? Because we're uh, able to scale up and down on demand, both vertically uh, as you can be- get better hardware and also horizontally, correct? Because um, so a lot of these kind of jobs that, that are or uh, scenarios that we're running, we can send it to different workers uh, at the same time and, and get the result back. So, um Again, I mean, that's really what's kind of our experience. But I think, uh, Yannick, maybe you can um, uh, speak to some, some specific programs that, that you have in place that um, that, that can help, like, uh, people, you know, like, like QRI to um, to get onboarded um, uh, really fast and easy to, to AWS. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I know for QRI because I've, I've, I've been working with them for, for quite a long time now. And yeah, we do have what we call the SaaS factory. So usually, you know, um, you know, some of our partners, they might have solutions that are not SaaS, right? And, and so we don't have a specialized, a dedicated team that actually works through, you know, look at the code base and then try to figure out, okay, if you want to deliver this as a SaaS, right, where customers just click, you know, log in into the web portal and then use the solution, right? How do we re-architect that to actually fit that model? So we have a team that actually works with that. You choose that. And also the, I mean, the energy, the, the energy segment with AWS is pretty big. And, you know, we do have folks that have you know, also work in the oil and gas industry so they can actually you know, see where we can, you know, you know the, what value does it, the solution actually drive with our end customers, right? They take that solution and actually co-sell. So um, sitting in the partner ecosystem is not just, you know, trying to co-build solutions with, you know, just one partners to build on AWS. No, we, we actually work with you also to co-market and co-sell. So, for example, if you have an end, end customer opportunity, right, we go with our partners so we can have that conversation with the customer. So it's not just trying to leverage X and Y AWS services. 
it's also helping build a business with our partners right from a partnership standpoint very cool okay so i've I've got one kind of last question i think that helps us understand any any of the viewers who may have a solution that they want to scale and scale quickly there's there's obviously ways to help them architecture it and get it onto the cloud so that way it can it can be used more i've got something what if there's a big if question i have some big huge problem that i want to solve let's talk about energy storage as an example trying to understand how we really fully utilize intermittent renewables through energy storage i don't have any type of solution. I just kind of know conceptually, these are the steps I want to do. How, how can I take something like that very early stage conceptual model, maybe a technology readiness of zero or one? It's really just ideation. Is that something that I can bring to you, Yannick, and somehow develop a solution that is cloud native on AWS that they can figure out energy storage and save the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, that falls under the startup program, right? We have a program which is a startup program. So um, founders that have ideation, right? I mean, I'm assuming you do have, you know, you've done all the business justification, right? To see, okay, this is the next big thing, right? So yeah, we do have a team that actually works with you and actually from ideation phase and looking through the, you know, how do you want to deploy your solution, right? What's, what are you trying to solve? And come out with an architectural diagram, right? Architecture, right? How do you want this to be deployed? Do you want it to be as an end customer where they just take that solution and go deploy within themselves? Or you want to have a SaaS base where you're going to have users that can log into your solution and actually use it, right? So we work with you making sure we understand that and then give you design principles, right? Guidance on how to build that. And that might be through, you know, immersion days, workshops where we dive into specific services. For example, if you see from an architectural perspective, you have a couple of number of services you want to leverage. So we have workshops for each service line where we go with you. So, I mean, you're not blank, right? You have some foundational knowledge and then no, most importantly, you want to have a prototype, right? Proof of concept. How does it work in a small scale, right? Now, what are the challenges you're going to face with, at this level before you want to scale that to a, a grand scale? And also, you know, cost, of course, um, startups, right? Cost is always a problem. So you want to make sure from that scale, we want to address some of the cost concerns we might have. So when you scale, um, 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 you're not, you know, over-provisioning your resources. And one of the resources that you know, usually we use is called the world architected framework where we look at some of the pillars right sustainability actually is added so right so for you know partners that are really heavily to sustainability there's a pillar right there so it it gives you design patterns and design principles on how to build a world architected solution following the different pillars right sustainability cost optimization reliability performance efficiency security right these are things that we we build your solutions with respect to that. So, so you, you know you might you know it, it, it actually scales and you know, helps you drive your business outcome. Great, 
Yeah, that's a that's exciting to hear as well because not all of us are are not all of us are necessarily subject matter experts in what we're trying to solve. We may just have some type of business understanding and see a problem and have an idea to solve it or may have zero coding experience and zero understanding of how to code, but we can conceptualize the solution. So it's always helpful to know that there are other options and other ways to to bring in and, and solve these problems, even if we ourselves aren't the ones coding the, the solution. Yes. I think that is a, a good stopping point, transition point to my final questions. These are the questions I ask everybody. So y'all are, are getting to answer these now. That first question is, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Yannick, let's have you go first with your book wow. recommendation. That's that's an interesting one, right? I mean, uh, well, non-tech, um, non-anything finance, uh, I think the this one book I've read end to end, right? That's why I can really recall. It's it's called Things Fall Apart by Shinoa Achebe. It's an African fictional folklore which talks about there's this war African warrior who was so resistant to changes, you know, when you know, religion came in and you know civilization. So he was really adamant. So he was causing all kind of chaos within the community, right? So, I mean, that's the book I've read end to end, and so <laughs> that's what that's the one that kept up on my mind. Yeah. All right. I think that we had to read that in high school or either read a chapter from it. And I do remember it was the piece that I did read, whether it was the whole book or not, was just it's fascinating to read and and see kind of that change and and the way that certain people can react, even if it's a fictional story, seeing how you react to situations. So it was very, very enjoyable and glad to recommend it here. Hamid, what about you? What is a favorite book that you would recommend? Mm, I think I'm going to go with the, uh, the, the Martian, uh, which is um, a science fiction novel written by, by Andy Verge. It's it's about the story of astronauts who got stuck alone in Mars and, um, has to survive until until the next mission um, that the, the derives and, and and also the the novel is fiction it feels really I mean not not fiction and and I think in a sense it feels like there um, some some analogies to the to the energy transition journey we're ex- experiencing now I mean a lot of things that ten years ago felt like science fiction are happening now and really I mean the, the energy transition is really necessary for. Uh, the survival of, of hum, human race and, and, the, and the planet Earth. And if you don't want to read the book, I think oh, uh, there's a there's a great movie about it with, with Matt Damon as the main character, and, and I highly uh, recommend that one as well. Yep, I've seen the movie, and <laughs> I think I still own a copy of the book. So okay. I've heard that I've heard it's one of those that kind of blend, make it almost historical science fiction because they talk about all of the past missions to Mars. And in the movie, you see him going around basically hitting all of these past missions to pick up and build these, these systems of his that keep him alive. So excited to read that one as well. The next question, Hamid, we'll start with you this time. When will we be net zero as a society? 
Ah, I wish I had the answer for it. I think that's that's a difficult one because um, it requires, you know, like te- technology advancement, uh, uh, better global policies, and, and also, I mean, really commitment from all, all the countries around the globe. And, uh, and I think, like from from the technology perspective, I believe we can definitely get there in the in the next decade or two. Uh, for example, if you look at the U.S. Uh, greenhouse um, emission by by the economic uh, sector. The two big buckets are transportation and electricity generation, correct? So uh, we've already seen great advancement in electric cars and, and in the last decade. And uh, I mean, there are still some some issues with scaling, but I think there, there are uh, some really good things happening right now. And on, on the electricity generation, for example, uh, the the technology that our partner Omnis Global Technology Technologies is offering today um, can, can solve majority of the of the problem and reduce the GHG emissions by more than ninety percent, specifically for uh, natural gas and, and coal based uh, power plants. And um, if I have to just give you an educated guess, I would say uh, we're going to be um, maybe close to net zero by twenty fifty, but it can happen sooner or it can be delayed, really based on all, all the all the factor I mentioned. Very cool. I always like that answer that we will find a way and it it is going to be technology driven. I, I, that's why I love doing this show so much because these are the energy transition solutions and talking about partners that you're working with and, and just seeing that that growth, whether it is from from incumbent large oil and gas companies all the way through to solution providers who are sharing their knowledge and their understanding of how to how to build better systems that could ultimately get us there. It's always very exciting. Yannick, from your perspective, where when will we be net zero as a society? Um <clears throat> yeah, that's a that's a hard one, right? Because I mean, that's a collective effort, right? But I mean, just echoing to what Ahmed said, and the, I mean, the Paris Agreement, right? They, they, there's a there's a commitment to net zero by 2050, right? So that's still around that time. And from from an Amazon perspective, I know we uh, there's a commitment for net zero by 2040, which is kind of like 10 years earlier than, than what you know, the Paris Agreement is actually. So I'm gonna stick to that number, right? So. Because the, the the pace of technology, as we see, it's it's rapidly changing. So, um, not surprised if 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 we hit that that target. All right, I like it, and I do like the point that you made that it, and and Hamid, you made this point as well that it it does start kind of personally, and then with your company and in your cohort, if you will, that ultimately everybody is responsible for making some change and and with AWS and Amazon having that 2040 goal that is a commitment and and it starts with you being there doing that and reaching your goal because ultimately you have you have your goal that you have to reach so i i like that now the last question you actually get to ask me a question uh i guess if one of you has a question ready to go, I I will let y'all choose who goes first. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can I can start. I think mine is very straightforward, right? So um, 
with you hosting this podcast, right? Um, I mean, multiple times, um, and giving the you know this uh, a lot of energy transition talk, right? So, what have you seen so far? Is there any current trend you've seen so far? You know, are people looking into more on uh, solar geothermal, or what have you seen so far? That is. It's a good question. I think the biggest trends that I see right now are as far as renewable energy, geothermal is having its time in the spotlight. It feels like everybody is excited about geothermal right now. At least that was kind of 2020 to present. I, I'll be curious to see what happens this year because of higher oil and gas prices, it may mean that that oil and gas the oil and gas industry is not as interested in geothermal. I'll be curious to see what happens this year. I think I think they will still be interested and there are a number of projects that have been funded that should should be a great opportunity to continue the momentum and growth in geothermal. One of the other trends that really interests me is large scale solar development associated with industrial industrial and commercial properties. And part of that, I, I say industrial and commercial, I'm going to add in the caveat that part of that is these large real estate companies that are buying all of the single residential houses. Some of these companies are now partnering with solar companies to put solar panels on all of these single family residential houses in an industrial commercial size scale. That is really interesting to me because that is, I would argue is a wasted opportunity. We have all of these roofs that aren't doing anything. So why not make them do something? whether it's generating some solar solar power or catching rain or just doing something that helps us move towards a net zero future. And it's exciting to see these larger real estate development companies making partnerships that are moving in that direction. I think those are the two most exciting trends I am also very excited to see companies like QRI and AWS and everybody who is working on making the oil and gas industry more efficient, more economic, more optimized, because ultimately we still run on oil and gas. So the cleaner we can make it, the the better off the world is. And that is a clear, immediate impact. And so I think that that is... That's kind of near-term, low-hanging fruit, optimize the oil field and continue on that path of what is that technology that once we make it commercial in the next five to 10 years, what can actually be that, that, that step change that we can have in the future? So your, your simple question, there is a long-winded answer for it. <laughs> Thanks. Hamid, what about you? Do you have a question for me? 
Well, I'm, I'm actually going to cheat here and ask you uh, the, the same question you asked us about the net zero. You said you, you asked this question from everyone. So I'm curious, is, is there any consensus out there? I mean, what, what's your take? I mean, are we going to get to net zero? And, and, and if yes, uh, when? Yeah. The general consensus, I think, is between 2050 and 2075. That's what it seems like most people kind of fall into. And there's a few reasons. And I, I agree that we will get there and we will get there, I think, in, a, in an abrupt and surprising fashion. And the reason that everybody gives is human ingenuity and optimism, technology development, and then the... I forget what the way people put it, but basically necessity. Once everything kind of starts going downhill, if if everything starts going downhill, if we see this runaway in climate change that starts having very significant adverse impacts, then people will realize, oh, we need to change and we need to change now. And there will be almost like a light switch that is flipped and we will change society. And we will make it so we we can survive the next two, three, four thousand years. So I think that because of those three, if if twenty fifty is this magical mark that we have to be net zero by then, I think we will either just do it commercially and it will happen and everybody will be happy, or there will be there will be a grave negative impact on the climate and on society and humanity and then we will force ourselves to do it and so i guess that's the hopefully we don't get into that scenario where where we end up in this what feels like a in a post-apocalyptic world i don't think that's going to be the case i think we'll We'll take that technology and commerciality route, but I think that we are a very, um, I think we're a very resourceful species. I think we will find a way to persevere. So if, if climate change truly is going to be the end of us, if we choose not to do anything, I, I think we will then choose to do something. Took a very dark turn there at the end, but <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, let, let's hope for the best. So yeah. I think I agree with you. I think we we're gonna find a solution. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Hamid Yannick, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say, Yannick? Let's have you go no, first. I just yeah, I just want to thank you, Joe. I mean, this was a great discussion and uh, really enjoyed our conversation today. I mean, you're doing a great job with this uh, energy transition podcast and providing a, a great platform for uh, for people to share information and also uh, learning about really the latest advancement happening um, around, around uh, energy transition. And, and for the audience, I mean, again, thank you for listening. And if you have questions, 
either you have a problem that you think we can help you with or you might have a suggestion or feedback for us, uh, please feel free to contact me. I'm sure if you can, con- if you contact Joe, he will pass the information to me, but also you can uh, visit our website at uh, qrigroup.com. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, the same. I just want to thank you, Joe, for the time and also for this opportunity, right? And just so in the spirit of energy transition, um, this one, uh, QRI specifically has one solution, which I really like. It's called SML, which is kind of, uh, you know, um, no code machine learning. So, I mean, you now we talk about energy transition, right? So sometimes business users also, they want to be able to have, you know, production. They also want to have, you know, some, um, well, they want to predict, you know, production rates and all that, right? They want to use machine learning, right? But sometimes the barriers is usually they need that technical skill. So how am I going to build a model? How do I know the right algorithm to choose? How do I optimize, right? So QRI has a solution which is called SML. It's like a no-code, you know, plug and play machine learning solution where you can, ha- you know, you can build your machine learning model in a matter of minutes without writing any code. Mm-hmm. And so I think solutions like that will actually come a long way you know, to provide value for energy transition because business users will be able to leverage some of those you know, tools and you know, provide uh, um, um, solutions, right, that they don't really need to be avid you know, software developers or, or, or coders, right? So I just want to put it out there. And since we're talking about energy transition. Great. Thank you very much for, for that. And thank you both again for for being on the show. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to go fill out. The link will be in the show notes, as well as links to Hamid and Yannick's LinkedIn and and their websites. So please go to the show notes, click on all the links, go fill out that survey. We'll send you some stickers for filling out the survey, and, and you'll get to hear more great information about QRI and AWS. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.